Welcome to Short Course, episode 125, for February 23rd, 2024. I'm your host, Ben Barry. There was enough that happened this past week that I figured it was worthwhile to get on here and do a, a sort of update episode. We've got the upcoming February board meeting, which will be this Monday, so I'm recording this Friday night, so it'll be three days from now. And a number of things have happened in USPSA that I wanted to talk about. And I actually have a, a topic related to shooting my carry gun at a match, which I did at the the indoor outlaw match that I helped run. I shot my carry gun for the four stages there, and I have something to talk about related to that. So we're going to do that. But we'll start with the, the USPSA news. So a few things, a few big stories this week. One big one is that the Area 5 director, Rick Steele, resigned via email this week, which is perfectly fine. I think makes as much sense to give us a heads up going into the meeting rather than finding out during the meeting, which was fine when Mel did it as well. But but definitely having a little heads up and being able to plan will be good. So he was his seat was already up for election this year. So the the process was already in place where guys were filing petitions for that. So in that sense, him resigning doesn't trigger a, a special election and the, the way that works in the bylaws is special elections are only triggered if half or more of the term is remaining. So more than two years of the four-year term. And it obviously in this case, it was only about, what, 10 months. So it'll we as a board will be in a position to appoint an interim. Now, Area 5 was already scheduled for a regular election. Area 5 and Area 2 are the, the two seats that are up for election this year. And... The cutoff date for that election is May 1st, which means voting. So voting starts 45 days after the cutoff date. So basically middle of June to middle of July. And the bylaws say they have 15 days to give us the, the results, but the election company usually sends them to us the next business day after voting ends. So we'll have that middle of July. If there's no runoff, if there's a runoff, then it's 45 more days before the runoff starts and 31 days of voting. And basically we'll have the outcome of the runoff if there is one at the beginning of October. There has not been any discussion about this among the board that, that I've seen, but obviously we're in a position where we can either appoint someone or if it looked like it was either going to be an uncontested election or resolved in the middle of July, it would be tempting to just let the election play out and then just appoint whoever won the election early. As it is, given that our runoffs add an extra two and a half months to the election cycle. And right now I think there are three or four people who have, I can think of three people and a fourth one who is talking about it, who have declared candidacy. So it seems unlikely that this is going to be uh, just a straight head to head two person election. So we probably won't have a winner in the middle of July. So we probably will want to appoint someone, but that'll be something the agenda already came out last Friday. So the agenda has to be posted 10 days before the meeting, which means you basically have 20 days after the previous meeting to get your agenda items ready. The agenda that was posted last Friday did not include anything about this because we didn't know about it yet. So we'll have to have a, a vote at the beginning of the meeting before the agenda is approved to add it. Pretty standard procedural stuff. The area three election is kind of interesting. So we just, this week, we just passed the cutoff date. So this is, this would be the special election to replace Scott Arnberg for the remainder of his term. It was confirmed. 
actually today, just a few hours before I hit record, Luke Faust was was one of the candidates. Andy Erickson is the other one. And Luke got confirmation that it was just the two of them that had filed paperwork. And once he had that confirmation, he emailed the board as well as posting publicly to say that he's withdrawing from the election, which invokes bylaw 6.9 uncontested election, which says in the event, there's a, a section for regular elections, but the, the part about special elections says in the event that a special election for president or area director is uncontested, the provisions of article 6.6 .6 shall be waived and the board will set the date for the winner to begin the term as per article 6.6. .6. So basically the, the situation that we're in with area three is I still want to get Scott back. I still think Scott deserves to serve out the rest of his term. I think he was he was removed unjustly, and I think we should still do everything we can to restore him. As far as I know, we still don't have the legal opinion back from the Delaware attorney, which means they basically have Monday to get it back to us. We were planning to review it at this meeting, but if we still don't have it, then I guess we just stay in the holding pattern. At least that's what that's what we voted on at the January meeting was to indefinitely postpone the start date for an interim. I suppose we're now past the interim phase to the point where we can set a start date for the winner of the uncontested election, but we'll have to discuss what's going on there. But again, I, I think, I mean, Andy, Andy has a, a podcast that he does. He actually, I think he has a couple podcasts, but he, he has one that's called not another shooting show, which is mostly about shooting stuff, but very interesting, very entertaining. And I, I definitely recommend giving it a listen. And he's said on there that he would rather Scott be in there too. But if if we can't make that happen, then then he's happy to serve as best he can in, in the meantime. So definitely glad Andy and Luke both stepped up to run. I appreciate what Luke is doing by by withdrawing, you know, sort of clearing the way to get an, another elected or not elected, another popularly supported vote on the board. But we will we'll see where that goes. Again, as far as I'm concerned, we're still waiting on the opinion from the Delaware attorney. That's sort of the best shot to get Scott back on the board, in my opinion. And we'll see where that goes. And then if that doesn't work out, then I'll be happy to uh, to have Andy on board. The really headline scandalous what is even happening in USPSA moment of the week came out of a the discovery that USPSA through the employees is seeking to move the operating place of business from Washington state to Alabama. And th th this gets a little confusing because we are incorporated as a Delaware corporation, but our primary state of business, the place where we pay all of our taxes and have our primary place of business and all that is currently Washington state. Now, one of the things that's happened over the past few years that was you know, part of the the much vaunted effort to improve the finances is with everybody working from home due to COVID, getting rid of the lease on the, the actual office space that we had and basically going to people working from home. But obviously, we still have some kind of physical business presence in Washington state. That's where all manner of legal documents list our list our our address of primary business. I know that's not the right legal term, but that's the gist of it. And what happened is after the first session of the January board meeting, John Burt, who's a, a candidate for area two, he lives in Arizona. He is or was 
I think he's retired now, a lawyer, he filed a complaint with the Washington State Bar Association that Jim Johnson, attorney Jim, was was conducting an unlicensed practice of law, which is apparently a pretty big deal for lawyers when you're not licensed, when you're acting in a state where you're not licensed. So they have boards, they have a way you report this to the bar. The bar has a committee that investigates. Apparently it's a, it's a whole thing. I was not really aware of this whole aspect of the, the state bar system, but it's lawyers treat it pretty seriously, apparently. So John Burt filed this complaint. Part of it was just the evidence from the live stream of Jim advising the board on legal matters. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know what actually constitutes practicing law versus giving advice versus general input. I, I don't know. But in his opinion, as a lawyer, it looked like practice of law. So he filed the complaint. And then what came out this week was Jim Johnson's response to it, which included a section where at one point, as he's talking about practicing law or not practicing law, he says, this is Jim Johnson writing in, in his response to the, the unlicensed practice of law complaint. He says, now that the USPSA Washington office is permanently closed and the corporation has taken steps to register as a foreign entity and establish a domicile in Alabama, USPSA has less of a need to consult with Ms. Funston. Ms. Funston being the lawyer who's been USPSA's counsel on of record for as long as I've been in the sport. So basically saying USPSA is moving to Alabama, so we don't really need our Washington lawyer anymore which was a pretty big surprise to me as a member of the board because this this was the first I was hearing of it. And sure enough, Derek Lewis, Practical Shooting Insights, he went to the Alabama Secretary of State, looked up on their, their business records website, and sure enough, there is a registration that was filed the day of the second half of the January board meeting. So it had the filing had been made and approved by the time we entered that second session of the board meeting. So it was clearly known, but it was not mentioned on that on that board meeting to start the process of basically, I guess, reserving the name of USPSA. And this is, you know, actual concrete steps with the, the Alabama Secretary of State to do what Jim Johnson in his UPL complaint response says is happening, which is basically moving moving USPSA from Washington State to to Alabama, which, like I said, this is the first I'm hearing of this. And so this was this was pretty shocking. Needless to say, this has kicked off quite a bit of discussion and investigation internally. I can't really say any more than that, but that is the publicly available information. And I've I've checked it out myself. It's all true. It looks like these steps are being taken. And I think obviously moving moving the the whole business, the place of business is a pretty big deal. And we should make sure it's being done with the board's approval and with the proper circumspection and analysis of other alternatives and making sure and it, all this stuff, all, all the stuff that was not done. So like I said, it's all I can really say for now, but the investigation is ongoing. So as for the meeting this Monday, it will be probably another pretty full one. Hopefully we'll actually just be able to cover the agenda items and not have too many surprises and long drawn out legal snafus and discussions and whatnot. But the there is some discussion about basically live streaming and the wisdom of continuing to do it and the possible legal exposure that it opens us up to. I 
still firmly believe that it that it is the right thing to do. I'll be pushing to continue to live stream until there's a, a real strong articulable reason not to. And so far, I, I have not personally seen one. The recordings also will not be posted by USPSA any time soon from what I'm hearing. So catch the catch the live broadcast or hopefully someone else, you know, once again, gets a recording and, and has a playback somewhere that you can watch it. But we it sounds like we will not be hosting those for the foreseeable future. But there will be, like I said, a bunch of reports from the various employee directors. We have a, the managing director's report, including some financial information, which was not a part of the January board meeting, which you know was already nine hours split over two days. So hopefully we'll, we'll get a good catch up on that. We should be in a position, the, I don't think it'll be a part of a February board meeting, but presumably it'll be a part of the March one. The, the budget has to be drafted and presented for board approval by March 31st. So presumably we'll be, we'll be talking about that in, in February, but we are trying to make the meetings more efficient, shifting more of a focus to having written director reports that we can review ahead of time. And then the actual discussion on the meeting is more freeform discussion, asking questions, following up on things that were unclear in the, in, in the written report. So hopefully that will help expedite things and, and make the meetings more efficient. I know it might seem trivial compared to a lot of the other stuff that's going on with the board, but we are trying to establish procedures and precedents to make the, the board meetings again, more efficient, more productive in a limited amount of time. Ideally, they would not be taking five hours every month. That that would be a nice goal to get to. So we're working towards that. There will be, because Mel resigned, it, the Area 4 director resigned during the, the January board meeting, we were able to set the cutoff date for the special election for his replacement, as well as convene a committee to find a, an interim to fill his seat until that special election happens. We'll hear the report from that committee and presumably vote on appointing an interim area four as well. So presumably he'll be starting whoever that is. We'll be starting in the next few weeks, if not few days after the, after the February board meeting. So things are moving along in that direction as it is right now. We, we will definitely be having an area one area four and yeah, so an area one and an area four special election this year, there will be an area five and area two regular election. And it looks like any way you slice it, there won't be an area three election. Either Scott gets restored to the board or Andy Erickson becomes the uncontested winner. And so it we are we are looking at four elections this year uh, instead of five. But that's that's the situation that we're in. The other question that I have gotten this week and, and over the over the last few weeks is what is the status of the protests? And what I can say is just what I've said before, which is it's definitely showing up in the numbers. The the numbers that I've seen are definitely more like twenty-five percent drop in activity, both unique number of of competitors as well as activities paid to the organization. And that I mean that definitely shows up. the The annual budget for activity fees alone is 
something like $600,000. So you slice off 25% of that if the protests continue at the current magnitude for the whole year. And that's $150,000. That's an additional revenue shortfall that, that we have to face in USPSA. Now, we have the financial resources to weather that, but I don't want us to. I still understand. I mean, it looks to me like the people who are protesting, the main thing that is that is being protested is the still the removal of Scott Arnberg. Now, I think putting Scott on the board is the right thing to do, period. But I think hopefully once we do that, the, the, the protests can wind down and people can actually go back to being willing to support a board that and an organization that they see as moving in a positive direction. And so when people ask me, you know, should I keep running my outlaw match? I, I say, Hey, I can't, I can't tell you what to do, but it's all a question of, do you as a match director feel like you are making things better or worse when you pay two to $300 a month? For every match that that you run on behalf of USPSA, do you feel like that that money is going to an organization that is listening? And so, to me, it's it's still up to each match director. That that's that's what makes this protest so different from anything in the past. We've seen individual competitors say that they're going to boycott, and many of them do. They either you know, go shoot PCSL or just don't shoot USPSA matches. But at the end of the day, an individual competitor is only only three dollars at a time. Typically, if we're, if we're talking about a, a USPSA match with a single classifier, USPSA takes gets three bucks from every match entry for that. If you run a match with no classifiers, then it's $1.50 a shooter. But that's that's the, the current activity fee structure. Does it, does it still make sense that if you want to run two classifiers, it's even more than $3? I personally don't think so. I think given that the whole system is automated, those activity fees should probably be revisited if a club wants to run two classifiers. I know uh, Area 5 candidate Christopher St. Clair mentions that his club does that just because they have two bays that are really not good for much else. And so at their match, they they run two classifiers, which means they're paying four bucks per shooter to, to USPSA for that. It, it's not like the computers need to be paid extra to process the extra classifier, but that, that's a different that's a different topic. I definitely think if clubs for logistical reasons like that want to run two classifiers because often there are bays that that are just suited for it I, I don't see a problem with that i don't see why we should charge people extra but that's uh that's the system where it is right now all of this to say the reason this this protest really has has had an effect is the fact that if a whole match director especially a match director that runs multiple matches or one really big match a month starts shifting away from running USBSA matches to running hit factor matches, then that whole match revenue goes away. It's not one one shooter, it's not three dollars at a time, it's two, three hundred dollars at a time if you if you have a, a, a really big match. And so that that is significant. And to me it's it's up to each match director. I I can't tell I can't tell them what to do. I definitely see things as as trending in a positive direction on the whole. When we look at things like the January board meeting where Frank was removed and then and then he was reinstated, that's nice, but it it just kind of got us back to where we started the January board meeting. So I, I think if the reason you're protesting is the removal of Scott, well that that's still unresolved. And hopefully hopefully we can resolve that. But I would say, at least for now, 
let's see how the, the February board meeting goes. Hopefully it's live streamed. Hopefully you see transparency. You see positive direction, movement in a positive direction that makes you as a match director feel good about being a part of the sport again and not sort of ashamed to be contributing to everything that's that's been happening for the last few years. And the topic that I just wanted to wind down with, which is much more of a a throwback to the earlier days of short course when it was less USPSA politics and more talking about shooting and practice and guns and whatnot, stems from the fact that I did finally shoot my my carry gun. My I think I've had it maybe six, eight months now. My my new carry gun, which is a, a Smith & Wesson CSX, which has definitely grown on me over time. I mean, I, I liked it when I got it, but the more I carry it and the more I shoot it, the more I, I like it. And it is, it's replacing a Smith & Wesson MNP. At the time it was marketed as the nine compact. Now it's the subcompact size. So the one that holds 12 rounds, the roughly Glock 26 size MNP compact. And it holds the same 12 rounds. To me, it's basically equivalently easy to shoot, but it is noticeably smaller, almost to the point where it's it's hard, like the holster carried appendix, the holster is so short that it doesn't really tuck the butt of the gun in because the muzzle barely sticks down past a, a standard concealed carry belt. So in a weird way, my if I have a complaint about it, it's that it's actually slightly too small, but I, I actually don't really mind that. The overall, the, the features of it as a, as a carry gun, I mean, it's got a grip big enough that I can get my whole hand on it. It's got front cocking serrations. It's got decent iron sights. It is contrary to most carry guns these days. It's not a it's not a striker gun or a double single gun. It is a single action cocked and locked gun with a thumb safety that is well designed. It it's got a nub where it's when you want to take it off, it comes off. But it's it, it has a positive enough click that you know when it's on, you know when it's off, and it's it's not going to come off accidentally. But it's uh, it's just a, a very nice shooting gun, in my opinion. It, it weighs 17 ounces unloaded no mag, which I believe is one or two ounces heavier than a than a P365, which has the benefit is is one of the benefits of of the aluminum frame. So it it has a much more substantial feel in your hand, but it's it's not a very heavy gun. Anyway, it's been largely panned from what I've seen by the, by the, the reviewer community. And I mean, the two obvious reasons are one, it doesn't come optics ready. And two, it doesn't have an accessory rail for a light or a laser, which I mean, my MNP compact had a rail and I never put a, a light on it. I didn't really see a, uh, a need or a use for it. I carry a, a pocket tactical flashlight that I can use in a low light situation. But, uh, you know, to me, the, the, the lack of a light rail was not a make or break thing. I would, I would like, I think it would help if, if they were able to put out a, an optics ready version, I'm sure there's probably something in the slide that they can't just mill away that they'd have to redesign around that's stopping them from just doing that tomorrow. But what I found interesting is the, the reviews of it that, that I saw were, they complained about the trigger and the trigger is weird, but it's not bad. It's just different. And 
this is sort of the, the the topic that I wanted to bring up, where the the CSX and the, the experience that I had, you know, both shooting it in in practice and now in this in this match, made me realize that the the, the reviewers that I think said bad things about it had a bad experience with it, and the bad experience was the trigger not resetting. And I saw one video that attributed it to there being like a false reset. Basically, as you let it out, it makes one click. And then if you let it out further, it makes a second click. And it's not till the second click that the triggers actually reset. And the thing is, in in competition, I mean, people talk, you know, if anybody talks to me about, oh, you know, riding the reset, shooting to the reset, I, I tell them that that's way too slow. You you don't want to be waiting, you know, let, let, let the trigger out. Wait, 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 click. Okay, pull it. You just want to let the trigger out with enough motion, you know, let basically let enough weight off the trigger that you know it's going to reset every time and then pull the trigger again because then you're not waiting. You are you are conducting a series of actions that doesn't have to wait for input. You pull the trigger to a certain uh, a certain weight until it breaks and then you let off to a certain weight and you start pulling again. And so you can fire at that rate where it's the sort of riding the reset or shooting to a reset or, you know, click pull, click bang, whatever whatever the technique is. It's to me, it's, it's just a complete non-starter in competition. It's not the way I shoot. It's not the way any high level competitor that I know of shoots. It's, it's one of these, I guess, maybe tactical world things that, that has just never really gone away, but because it seems on paper, like minimizing the distance traveled of the trigger will result in higher accuracy and faster speed. But Obviously, if you can, if you're moving your finger faster, then distance traveled does not necessarily matter, right? It's, it's not like your finger is moving at a fixed speed. So minimizing distance minimizes time. If you move your finger faster over a longer distance, it can actually result in, in less time taken. And as long as the actual trigger pulling at the very end of the trigger pull is precise and controlled, you can still shoot very accurately that way very quickly. But. I have one of the things that I found shooting this gun, both in practice and especially at, at a match where these, these types of things you're, you're shooting on a stage where the novelty of it and the, you know, even, even to me the after being in the sport for 10 years, there's still that little bit of a adrenaline and uncertainty and, uh, things aren't going right the way I expected that, that, that a stage and a match induces. And there were three different times in this match where I at one point or another, I failed to fully reset the trigger. And that got me thinking because I thought, okay, I've shot a lot of different guns. I've shot Glocks and 1911s and Tanfolios and CZs. Like I've shot a lot of different guns. I mean, not a lot and not as much as many guys, but I've shot very different platforms of guns. And this is not an issue I've had switching guns. And I had a hunch. And so I grabbed the, the kitchen scale. And what I found is that basically if it takes call it four and a half, five pounds of, of pressure to break, to cause the trigger to break on one of my Glock 17s. The amount of pressure that is on the trigger, basically to, I have to let off until there's only 20 ounces of pressure on the trigger and then it will reset. So basically you have to go, you know, from pulling the trigger all the way back with five pounds down to 20 pounds and that's when it'll reset. And with a Tanfolio, it was more like 16 ounces. So right at a pound. Now it's a lighter single action pull as well, but it was roughly equivalent. It was a pound versus a pound and a third, very similar numbers. And 
basically doing the same the same test with the CSX where I would just see how much pressure it took, how far I had to let off the trigger until it reset. The CSX, I had to let all the way off until there was only about six to eight ounces, depending on the run. Obviously, it was not the most sensitive kitchen scale, but about half of what I'm used to. And so what this tells me is I'm used to when I'm shooting quickly, I'm used to letting off the trigger, not all the way, right? There are some guys that'll say, you know, you, you should take your finger all the way off the trigger and, and slap it back down. I, I'm definitely not doing that. And this was a, this was a, let's say 50 round match. So in there, you know, let's ballpark it. There were 20 targets where I was shooting them twice. You know, so there, there were some single shot steel targets and that kind of thing. But let's say there were, you know, 20, 25 times that, that I had to reset the trigger and, and shoot a second shot quickly. And of those two or three of them, I, I failed to reset it. So I was doing it right nine out of 10 times. But what was happening, obviously, in those two or three cases where I was getting it wrong is I'm used to, I'm trying to only let the trigger out to, you know, somewhere between eight ounces and a pound, which normally would be enough to reset any other gun that I shoot. And so that's just, that's just a quirk of this gun. It's just, it's something that I don't think reviewers are used to taking into account. It's not, you know, we, we think of, okay, what's the weight it takes to break the shot. But I, I've certainly never seen a review that, you know, you, you'll see these guys doing like a YouTube video review showing you, oh, here's the reset. And they let their finger out as though seeing the distance traveled tells you anything when, as we've discussed, it's really more about the amount of pressure that it takes to, to do it. But for all those guys, you know, who do a, a YouTube video showing you the reset and like holding it real close to the camera so you can hear the click. Uh, I, I've, I've never seen anybody talk about, okay, it, you know, the trigger breaks at five pounds and it resets at one pound or it breaks at five pounds and it resets at eight ounces. So I thought that was, that was interesting. And again, the question is, is that, does that make the CSX worse or is it just different? Is it just something to me, when I look at a gun like that, it's actually saying, oh, I'm, I'm actually closer. I'm riding the margin closer in terms of how much pressure I'm letting off the trigger that I'm likely inducing basically the equivalent of trigger freeze by by not resetting the, the trigger all the way. And maybe, you know, once in a match, if I'm trying to shoot really fast, and I haven't been practicing a lot recently, so probably more more recently, but, you know, I'll, I'll get trigger freeze if I'm trying to shoot really quickly, which generally is, you know, a result of too much strong hand tension. And so you try and, and release the trigger finger and, and you just, you don't. So let's say on my Tanfolio, I have to release down to 16 ounces to get the trigger to reset. And maybe I release the trigger only down to 20 or 24 ounces, right? And this is not something that I thought to quantify before, but it was just an interesting thing to, to look at this gun and say this, I'm sure this is one of the reasons that reviewers didn't like it. And they couldn't, maybe they couldn't quite put their finger on it. I didn't see anybody analyze it quite this way. But when you look at it in the right lens, in the sense of, well, you know, I, I should be letting the trigger out that far anyway. I should be letting the pressure off to, to guarantee that I'm going to reset it and avoid trigger freeze. Then I don't see that as a, as a problem with the gun. Now, I don't know, maybe I'll shoot a thousand rounds more through it and decide I actually really don't want to mess with this. And I just want to get something that's more familiar and, and easier, but I mean, I kind of doubt it. I, I do like this gun. I find it really for being as small and light as it is really pleasant to shoot, really, really easy to split quickly with it. I have a lot of confidence in it. And 
So maybe I'm inclined to make excuses for it. That's also possible too. But I just thought that it was a very interesting case where it was different, not necessarily worse, but if you're just used to one thing and you pick something up and you try it and immediately it feels weird and it feels worse, a lot of people will not invest the time in actually exploring that and and taking it to its logical conclusion. And they just end up writing it off and saying, oh yeah, you know, I, I can't do that or I can't, this is no good for me or, you know, those guns aren't very accurate or that trigger, you can't shoot straight and or whatever it is. And I mean, there's no, there's no secret decoder ring to this. Some things objectively just are worse, but if it's something where the gear is challenging you, it's, it is actually, the gear is fine. You just need to adapt your technique in a direction that you should adapt it anyway, then let it push you to, to be better and to improve. And I mean, of course, ironically with the CSX, it actually has a really fairly noisy and audible tactile kind of reset. So if somebody were trying to shoot it to reset, they would, they would know when it was there, but that's, I mean, that's not what you want to be doing. That's still a fundamentally slow technique. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't want a piece of gear that incentivizes you to adopt an incorrect technique, but something like this where, okay, now that I know this gun is different in this way and I need to be mindful when I shoot and practice with it and just in general, be more aware of how much pressure I'm letting off on the trigger when I want to reset it quickly. That's, that's, that's an area that I can improve. And this is something that, that dry fire is, that's difficult to measure in dry fire because generally speaking, whether you're shooting a a Glock or a Tanfolio, if you get, you know, a first shot that gives you a real break after that, you know, especially with a, like a a double single gun, you're just going to be working the, the trigger back and forth, moving it, but you're not really, you don't really have a sense of when you've reset the trigger to what a realistic single action would be. And so to me, it's, it is something to emphasize taking into dry fire to, you know, let the trigger out far enough to, to, to not completely let it all the way out. And that'll result in, in re-engaging the double, double action pull. But maybe that's what it is. Maybe this is a scar of years, what, eight, eight years now. Yeah. It'll be eight years. Well, seven and a half. It'll be eight years this September that, uh, that I've been shooting these, these stock twos and, that's actually a gun that in dry fire, you really don't want to let the trigger all the way out or it's going to pick up the double action. And so maybe this is a side effect of, of those years of practice. I don't know, but it's definitely something where it is not a, a, an insurmountable flaw of the gun. To me, the gun has so many other things going for it that I'm perfectly happy just training with it. You know, when I go to practice shooting a couple magazines through it and trying to get used to that and, and be more aware of, of that, that trigger reset. And, you know, just another example of, Hey, maybe sometimes the the people on the internet have a different set of values or aren't that interested in, in what you're interested in. So I think it's a cool gun. I like it a lot. If you see me in a match, I will have it with me somewhere. And so, you know, if you want to shoot it, let me know. Well, that wraps up this episode of short course. If you want to get in touch with me, my email is ben at barryshooting.com. Talk to you next time.